1: Today, Matt and I conclude a two-part podcast series where we take a look at some of the key issues we're going to be watching in 2022. We have a lot of fun, and I know you'll enjoy it. Welcome to Compliance into the Weeds. Topics we explore in this podcast include SPACs and how the Day of Reckoning may be coming for SPACs, the Securities and Exchange Commission investigation into Facebook, its investigation into Activision and what this may mean going forward. And We conclude with some thoughts on Chief Compliance Officer Compensation and how the great resignation and the events of the pandemic may have changed that going forward. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of Compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance for part two of our two-part podcast series on taking a look at some events to watch in 2022. Matt wrote a blog post on it that we're going to link to called Seven Compliance Events to Watch in 2022. And uh, first of all, Matt, welcome back.
0: Thank you, Tom. Good to be here and to keep on going with what we think is happening.
1: So, Matt, uh, our next topic is something that uh, you and I both uh, wrote and commented about, podcasted about quite a bit in 2021. We had a very, uh, I think, significant SEC enforcement action involving the topic of SPACs, uh, specifically Nicola. Uh, in twenty uh, December 2021. But where do you see perhaps more regulation of SPACs going? And is this a, a philosophical discussion? Or do you think the Securities and Exchange Commission thinks we have a real problem out there, we need to get our arms around?
0: I suspect it is closer to the latter. So SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies, I suspect most listeners already know about SPACs and know that they are everywhere. But the nature of the SPAC is that a sponsor who is the management team. They put together the SPAC, they host an IPO. Typically, you might raise like 30 million shares at $10 a pop. So you raise 300 million in an IPO, and all of the 300 million is put into a trust. And then from the IPO date, the SPAC sponsor has usually 18, sometimes 24 months to go and acquire a private company, which is then Merged with the SPAC sponsor, they de-SPAC, and then poof, presto changeo, the private company is now a fully public operating company. That's how it's supposed to work. Now, the reason why these things are troublesome is that the closer you get to that deadline of 18 to 24 months – the more pressure the SPAC sponsor feels to get a deal done. If I do not do this deal, I have to give that $300 million in the trust back to the investors, horror of horrors, and all the money I, the SPAC sponsor, have been paying to keep this thing going for 18 or 24 months, all of my money, that's down the tubes and I lose. So SPAC sponsors inherently have a conflict of interest against their investors. And the closer we get to that deadline, The more they start to maybe turn a blind eye to due diligence, or they start getting a substandard company, or they promised investors, we would only invest in ESG companies, and now we got two months, let's just go buy that oil and gas driller over there, because we got to get this thing done. A lot of that will happen. Um, We have started to see SEC enforcement along those lines. And Tom, I always thought that the biggest, most interesting SPAC enforcement action wasn't Nikola, the hydrogen fuel car company, supposed, uh, but actually happened earlier in 2021. It was Momentus, a satellite propulsion technology company that had agreed to emerge. uh, SPAC, SPAC had agreed to acquire Momentus, had the IPO date ready or the merger date ready to go. The merger had been announced, and then the SEC interceded to point out that the SPAC sponsors had not disclosed to investors. Number one, the satellite technology, nobody knew if it would work because the test that they supposedly had didn't happen. And number two, the CEO of Momentus, the private company that was going to be acquired, he was a Russian national who had been deemed a national security risk in the United States, and he had to leave the country, and he retired to Switzerland and was no longer running the business. Neither of those facts had been disclosed to the SPAC investors after the merger deal had been announced. Uh, so it's that kind of stuff that you're going to see more of. The Nicola case is similar in that they had this fly-by-night CEO who is currently under indictment for pumping out all sorts of wacko stuff about the promise of hydrogen cars and Nicola's alternative vehicle trucks and cars that they were supposedly <laughs> going to make, uh, none of which was actually true. Um, but he had been doing that for several years before the SPAC came along, and then he was CEO after the SPAC merger, and then as soon as people realized this is hokum, there's nothing there, uh, he resigned. The, Nicola is still trying to motor along, I suppose, uh, under reduced power, and the CEO is now the ex-CEO, and he has been indicted in a criminal case out of New York, I think it is. So it's that kind of stuff. That is happening with SPACs. It's going to happen more often because remember, 18 months. Most SPACs went public at the end of 2020 or early 2021, large numbers of them, hundreds of them. Well, what is 18 months from the beginning of 2021? It's June of 2022. That's around the corner. So we're going to see a lot more SPAC firms doing a lot more whatever. Now, Gary Gensler uh, has already said, He does not really agree with the idea that SPACs are somehow different than the traditional IPO. He has flat out said SPACs are an alternative to the traditional IPO. So they must adhere to all the investor protections of the traditional IPO. A lot more disclosure, a lot more liability for um, internal control over financial reporting, which must start from the moment the company de-SPACs. And so there's... Uh, He's also already said that he has directed SEC staff to come up with a fresh look at the required regulations for SPACs, probably a lot more disclosure obligations for SPAC sponsors. But I think the SEC is going to step up sometime soon with new proposals to put an end to this monkey business once and for all, which is going to continue. And anybody wondering, what does this have to do with me, if you are at a private company You are being circled around by SPACs. They're knocking on your CFO's door saying, wouldn't it be nice to go public? You get to make a lot of money. Wouldn't that be great? Um, And if your disclosure controls are not up to snuff, if your internal controls, financial reporting are not up to snuff, guess who, dear listener, is going to wind up having to clean up that mess? It will be you because that is going to be your job at a public company. That's what compliance officers and risk managers and audit executives have to do. So there is a real incentive for private companies who might be SPAC targets to pay attention to this before some jamoke SPAC firm calls you up and sweet talks your board into going along with whatever harebrained scheme they're going to try and come up with before their 18-month window closes on their fingers. And that's, uh, Tommy, as, as you might tell, I get wound up talking about SPACs. I, I have a lot of issues with these things, and, and that's where I think they're we're, they're going.
1: Well, for our listeners who are continuing to motor along after Matt's comments on Nicola, my only suggestion to you is you should really follow his Twitter feed because uh, the drollness you observed in this podcast is only uh, exponentially uh, more in his Twitter feed. It's a lot of fun. But Matt, you really said a lot of things in there about, uh, if I can just summarize just a few of them, that uh, SPACs are... a. a essentially, uh, or uh, a different way uh, to go uh, IPO and that the uh, investor protections we see in an IPO, uh, we could probably point to we work as, as when the investor protections worked, as well as I've seen them work, um, are not present. And what Nicola really raised a possibility for me is, is the SEC going to actually start Doing either a retrospective look back of comments by uh pre-DSPAC SPAC companies, uh, so i.e., when they were private and could say things and get away with it that they couldn't in the public markets, um, or they're gonna put some regulations around private companies uh that are more robust than they are now, uh, because you can never determine who is going to be selected by a SPAC to be purchased, and then go public via a spac So I saw a lot there. And then um, on the shareholder derivative litigation side, uh, almost every one of these SPACs now generates some sort of lawsuit because that really speaks to the first part of your general remarks, which was the inherent conflict of interest. And um, if a uh, SPAC does not perform any due diligence or no compliance due diligence prior to acquiring a company and um, these nefarious or other ethically uh, sc- uh, uh, cloudy things come out after the company goes public and it devalues the value of the spec. Is that an actionable, at least a civil action for uh, shareholder actions? And so I guess uh, if I can end this with where I think uh, you were the most spot on in, in your uh, both your posts and your remarks is, hey, guys, uh, we're getting ready to run up on the last six months of that 18-month run of SPAC funding. And whatever you think may or may not have happened in the first 12 months, well, you better put on your seatbelt because it's going to be a bumpy ride going forward. And there's going to be the acquisitions of a lot of companies where little or no due diligence was done. They may have shady or iffy financial statements. And when they go public, uh, they're going to have all the obligations of a U.S. public company.
0: Tom, that brings up one last point about SPACs I think is worth uh, mentioning, especially because it's probably going to happen sometime fairly soon in 2022. Uh, You're right about the corporate governance case law on this is slim to none, uh, most of these litigation disputes, uh, when they are going to come around, they're going to be heard in Delaware Chancery Court. And the court heard its first SPAC case only within the last couple of months or so, last couple of weeks, uh, where we actually had oral arguments, a motion to dismiss that got to the inside of the courtroom where the Chancery Court was considering it. And they haven't ruled on it yet. But the basic issue is going to be that you, the shareholders of this, now exposed to be quack company well who do you sue because if you go after the SPAC sponsors who put this together they're going to try to say we don't have anything to do with the company anymore it is despack the the corporate entity is now that publicly traded private company that, that we took public go sue them and the board but the publicly traded de-SPAC'd company and its board is going to say well We had nothing to do with this either because we weren't the ones who misled you. Go sue the sponsor. They're the ones who sold you the bill of goods. And clearly that is untenable. Somebody somewhere has to be responsible for whatever cockamamie stuff gets foisted onto the shareholders. It's just that the Delaware Chancery Court has not yet started to make rulings that would help illuminate this question. Um, We are likely to see more rulings from the Chancery Court this year trying to illuminate those questions. And I think that will be instructive for the other shareholder litigation that is inevitably going to follow because there are going to be more quack companies, uh, quack SPACs coming soon in 2022. That is inevitable. Uh, And then we can see where the, the chips fall.
1: Well, Matt, our next topic is the SEC investigation into Facebook. And I have to say that of all of the issues you raised this one really uh, took me down uh, multiple trails, multiple rabbit holes, and I really think a lot uh, of different issues arise because of this investigation, because of the whistleblower Francis Hogan and because of the issues she raised. So uh, maybe you could set the stage and
0: then we can see where this discussion might go. Sure. So I'm sure most people here recall the Facebook files published by the Wall Street Journal last fall, uh, where Frances Haugen, a former product manager from Facebook, she had big problems with what I would describe as the ethical commitment or the lack thereof from senior Facebook managers to how the company was run. She took a whole bunch of very sensitive documents, uh, leaked them to the Wall Street Journal, and then... Frances Hogan promptly did this whirlwind world tour where she appeared on 60 Minutes. She testified before Congress. She testified before, I think, the British Parliament, um, basically outlining how Facebook is a terrible company. They, they know that their product does terrible things to society at large, whether that is fostering false information about uh, vaccines or giving teenagers a complex about their body images and their their mental health or fostering the big lie with Donald Trump and his uh, election deniers or whatever you want to call them. But Facebook repeatedly says to the public, we are trying our best to be an ethical company and we want to do the right thing. And then behind the scenes, it's kind of like, well, you know, we're here to make money and that's that. So that is what Francis Hogan told the world On one level, I don't think that's surprising to anybody who's watched Facebook. I personally think Mark Zuckerberg still doesn't really understand what things he has unleashed upon the world and his responsibilities to try and tame it. Uh, But more than that, what was most interesting to me was – so here's Frances Haugen. She shares all of this very damning evidence and documentation with the world, and then she filed a whistleblower complaint with the SEC. Well – about what? Because she didn't actually allege any improper financial reporting. And she didn't really allege, in my view, any very specific, serious instances of violations of law where, you know, Facebook said this, but then they broke the law criminally doing that. That's not really what her complaints were about. I think her complaints were more about Facebook was not honest with the world about its professed love of ethical conduct and how hard it was trying to achieve those high lofty ethical standards. It really wasn't serious about that at all. Okay, I believe that. I believe that that Mark Zuckerberg doesn't quite get what he's doing and that the company puts profits over its moral responsibilities. But is that actually something that is so misleading to investors? It's a violation of federal securities law where the sec should get involved because if it is then i think a whole lot of other companies are going to be saying ew does that mean we have to take our ethical commitments more seriously too when we say we're super duper serious ethical but we're really just kind of kind of ethical most of the time really you know except when we have a 10q to close like is that going to be a violation of federal securities law where the SEC can get up all in your face about what you put in the 10Q, about what you put in the code of conduct, about what the CEO certifies. Uh, I think that's a very interesting question. And I'll be curious to see what the SEC does with it this year.
1: Let me perhaps uh, pitch out some questions that came up for me in uh, reading this part of your blog post, because the first thing I thought about was Activision. And uh, I think uh, our listeners are pretty aware of, of the Abroglio yep. Activision finds itself in and uh, a large number of employees claiming sexual harassment, uh, some claiming sexual discrimination. And the SEC has announced it's investigating the sexual harassment claims. Um, some commentators have claimed that this is outside the purview of the Securities and Exchange Commission, that they certainly have the right to Investigate uh, an allegations of financial fraud or financial misstatements, or information which would make their financial statements inaccurate. Uh, but they don't see the linkage between uh, saying that you have a robust anti-discrimination policy and then uh, harassing employees on a regular basis. Uh, the SEC responds that if impacts financial results and financial statements, that that fall, uh, it falls within their purview. Uh, is that what we're looking at here with Facebook, or do you see maybe uh, something different?
0: Well, I, th- I see something related, but in a certain extent, I think the Activision case is almost a bit easier to dispense with. The important point about Activision is that the allegations around Activision are, A, like they're, they're fact – Like This has happened. And we know this has happened because Activision has already settled a complaint with the EEOC. It settled it last year about these allegations. And uh, the state of California's Department of, uh, I think, Employment and Training also filed a lawsuit against Activision where, you know, sexual harassment, especially of the rife cultural dysfunction that had been you know, really, I think, substantiated so far at Activision, you know, accusations of rape. Rape is a crime, period. You know, regulators have a business. It is within their purview to say, okay, wait a minute. If rapes are happening at your company, we should probably look into how your business is being run. That's fair. Rape is illegal. It is a crime. Uh, Likewise, having a long history of sexual harassment, which you eventually settle with a labor regulator, okay, that is a fact. That is misconduct. That has happened. Everybody knows that is not acceptable. What Facebook is doing or what Ms. Hogan is alleging about Facebook isn't really that. I mean, she's not specifically alleging this crime here happened at this time. She is saying Facebook promised to be really ethical and really serious about ethics, and they're not. Okay, I think that could be sleazy. I I am no longer really on Facebook, and i because I don't trust their ethics and their morality, but I don't necessarily know that that's not illegal per se. I don't know that it is a securities violation, Uh, but I mean, I mean that. I don't know. Maybe it could be. Maybe this is something that the SEC should consider. Maybe the courts should weigh in on it, but it's not the sort of cut and dried, yeah, this is misconduct, and people have a right to look into this, that Activision has. Um, We should also note that one thing Distinction between Activision and Facebook is, to the best of our knowledge, there's no whistleblower involved in Activision. Um, that got shotgunned all over the news, thanks to California filing its lawsuit, and then the SEC began its investigation. I don't know that there's an SEC whistleblower at Activision cooperating with the SEC, as Ms. Hogan has been doing with the SEC. So um, you know they, they're not the same, although they are similar. Matt, the other uh, thing that I
1: wanted to raise in regard to the Facebook, or excuse me, the SEC investigation into Facebook is uh, several years ago, we had a series of court cases where shareholders brought uh, shareholder actions against companies for not living up to what they purportedly said around their values and ethics as reflected in codes of conduct, policies and procedures, uh, perhaps uh, statements of intent that were found in their public record on their website and other places, uh, the courts uniformly held that these statements were actually puffery and that corporations couldn't or shouldn't be held to that standard. With the SEC investigating Facebook on these issues, could that perhaps reignite a series of civil litigations with courts and once again, perhaps revisiting earlier decisions, uh, focus more on the, the civil liability as opposed to regulatory liability, or would they maybe even see the SEC as uh, guiding
0: us towards a new resolution? I think that is a very good question where, again, we don't know. Uh, a large part of it depends on, you know, this is why I included it on my list for this year, what is the SEC going to do? The SEC could decide this is actually not within its purview. Um, it is within the EEOC's purview. And maybe, you know, the EEOC, or I'm sorry, now we're talking about Activision. I mean, maybe there are other regulators that Facebook is more in the crosshairs with. But um, if the SEC decides that this isn't something it can enforce, that answers the question. I do think, Tom, your point about this being puffery, I love that word, it gets to really the the crux of it here, is your statement or your profession that you're going to commit to high ethical standards, Is that uh, does that require, imply any sort of civil liability if you fail, or is it puffery? And I just don't know. I think that's where we have to go with this. Or if the SEC files an action against uh, Facebook, is Facebook going to settle because that's quick and dirty and it has the money? Or is it going to go to court because it thinks that it has maybe better grounds to dismiss this kind of action? And again, we don't know uh would a regulatory settlement here then kind of reignite civil shareholder lawsuits i'm i'm less uh believing that that will happen i think you know if whatever the courts had said in the past about puffery is probably where it ends for civil litigation with shareholders but regulators do have a stronger you know hand that they can play i'm still not sure it's going to work i'm still not even necessarily sure it should work but you know, like That's why this is on the list. I'm dying to see how is Facebook, how is the SEC going to handle this Facebook complaint from Miss Hogan?
1: We're going to have a quick word for our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more compliance into the weeds.
0: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it?
1: Matt, the uh, the final issue we're going to take up in this podcast is compliance officer compensation. Um, you regularly look at, I believe, uh, CCO comp and have looked at it for a couple of years. Where do you see this going into 2022 and
0: perhaps even beyond? Well, I assume it's going up, and I, I hope that most compliance officers will get a raise. But um, the reason I put this item down about CCO compensation is to see if the Great Resignation that swept the land in 2021, um, how has that affected compliance officers specifically? Especially when you think, you know, and I, I firmly believe that the capabilities and skills that a compliance professional brings to a large corporation are very important, uh, because managing a corporation is getting quite complex, and a lot of doing business these days involves staying on the right side of regulatory obligations. So in theory, that should mean compliance officers are making a lot more money. And we should see that in salary surveys that might come out in 2022, right? I don't know. Uh, But that's what I'm looking for here. I can say I did dig up some stats that last summer, uh, an executive research firm, Barker Gilmore, they published a salary survey that said the average compliance officer, average chief compliance officer, they had a pay raise of 3.5% from 2020 to 2021 to about $200,000. In the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics, they had last published a salary survey at the end of 2019, which showed that CCO salary had risen about 4.5% from twenty seventeen to the end of twenty nineteen, to an average of about one hundred and eighty five, one hundred and eighty six thousand dollars. So, maybe Barker Gilmore and SCCE, you know, they seem to be pointing in the right same sort of direction. Uh, the SCCE does have some really great salary survey data when they publish it, but they publish it less often. Uh, after I put this out in the world. SCCE did tell me that they are going to have a salary report that will can happen later on this summer, and they'll publish the results hopefully by the end of 2022. So Tom, maybe by November, or December of this year, we can revert back to this and see what compliance officers are making. Listeners, you are always welcome to email me and just tell me flat out how much money you make. I'd always be curious to hear it. But like, let's see if compliance talent is in demand and the labor market is tight generally then compliance professionals should be making a lot more money this year. And let's see if that's the case. Well,
1: Matt, and I wanted to use this issue you raised to maybe explore whether or not the increased responsibility of a chief compliance officer and a compliance function could or should lead to an increase in funding, i.e. compensation. And um, so that could be something like taking over ESG or Are taking on a uh, wider remit within the corporate function, but also the skill set that a compliance officer is going to need moving forward. And we've talked a lot about, as you have written a lot about data, the use of data, data analytics, but that's becoming an increasingly important part of compliance. And as the next generation of compliance officers is trained, they're getting academic training in that. And many professional compliance officers who lack that training are are trying to get that. So could we see actually an increase in not only the roles and responsibilities of compliance, but a broader academic and professional background needed to be able to uh, fulfill the obligations of the compliance officer down the
0: road, leading to an increase in salary? Uh, I think so, because more and more often we hear that a compliance officer really has to know the business and know how to work with first line of defense operating units or second line uh, risk management functions like legal and HR. Uh, Increasingly, you need to know much more about cybersecurity and uh, privacy issues and how to embed those concerns in daily business processes. But if you know how to embed them in the daily business processes, that implies you know how to go to the business functions and say, all right, we're going to totally revamp how we do customer acquisition. And here's why, because we have all these new privacy concerns. And this is why it's really going to be important for you to work with us and achieve this higher standard of privacy concern. Like That's different than being able to fill out in Form 8K in a timely manner, um, although all of that is still going to be part of the job, too, or part of the compliance function. Uh, so I do think that that's going to translate into more compensation because if you're really good at the technical and you're really good at the people skills at the same time, um, you're probably in high demand. I suspect you are highly employable and therefore you could go to your company and say, look, pay me more or I'm going to have to take this other job from this other business. Um, so I, you know, one question that we never really look into And SCCE, if you're out there listening, maybe throw this in your salary survey. Have people taken new jobs? What is the chief compliance officer turnover rate? I don't know that I've ever seen that actually done before, but now that I'm saying it aloud, I think that's a very interesting question to ask um, because I suspect that compliance officers can position themselves to be highly employable in the business environment that's clearly coming to, to be in the 2020s. And, you know, either you do get a job with or your employer meets your demands or you'll be able to go elsewhere. Uh, That's true in a lot of industries right now. And I'm just curious to see how that will shake out at specifically in compliance and maybe at the higher levels.
1: Well, Matt, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this part two of our special two-part episode looking forward into 2022. Perhaps we should commit to uh, perhaps in December of 2022, taking a look at our list and seeing If the list remained the same and uh, some of our prognostications
0: may have been correct. That sounds like a great plan. I will put that on my calendar for 11 months from now.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this special two-part series where Matt and I look at some of the issues and trends we're going to be following in 2022. If you did not listen to episode one, I would urge you to go back and check out episode 257 to compliance into the weeds. I've linked to Matt's post on our show notes, so check that out for more information. If you have ever wanted to start your own podcast, 2022 is the year for you. So why don't you come on and join the Compliance Podcast Network? We have plenty of room for anything related to compliance. If you're interested, give me a shout. Tom Fox at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Hope you'll join Matt and I again next week for another issue of Compliance into the Weeds. Compliance into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.